Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features an expert discussion of key considerations for hepatologists, oncologists, and other healthcare providers in the contemporary use of immune checkpoint inhibitors for treating patients with advanced hepatocellular carcinoma. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Current and Future Immunotherapy Approaches for HCC, Evidence, Guidance, and Resources. During this podcast, Dr. Amit Singhal from the UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and Dr. Lipika Goyle from the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center in Boston, Massachusetts, discuss the appropriate use of immune checkpoint inhibitors for several representative patient cases with advanced HCC, including patients with and without elevated bleeding risk who require first-line systemic therapy, a patient with child PUB liver function, and a patient who requires management of immune-mediated hepatitis. Please visit the show notes for this episode for instructions on how to claim CME credit for listening to this podcast and for a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. We'll begin with a case. So this is a 56-year-old woman with a history of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. She presents with abdominal pain, recent 10-pound weight loss. Both of these are bad signs. Whenever a patient with HCC presents symptomatically, um, it usually implies that there's a um, a large amount of tumor burden. And unfortunately, the CT scan in this case um, does show that. 16-centimeter liver mass involving greater than 50% of the liver, main portal vein invasion, um, as well as lung metastases. There you can see the laboratory findings, but in brief, you know, the liver function is very good. All of these labs look excellent. Um, so this patient is a child PUA5, so good liver function. Has an upper endoscopy as they should, and fortunately the upper endoscopy shows no varices. So the question is, what would you do? What would be an optimal treatment choice for this patient? This really does highlight um, the importance of this presentation because uh, this is a perfect patient for atizolizumab and bevacizumab, um, which is once again, standard of care, um, first line therapy for patients with advanced HEC, good liver function, no varices. So now in contrast, this patient unfortunately presents differently. So this is a patient, 58 year old male, hepatitis C cirrhosis who underwent therapy in the past and actually had a good response from a hepatitis C perspective but unfortunately, because he has cirrhosis, continues to be at risk for HEC, and once again, like our prior patient, presented symptomatically with abdominal pain. And once again, the CAT scan shows diffuse enhancing tumors by lobar with washout and has a metastatic disease to um, uh, uh, the lymph nodes. This patient's albumin is low. Um, and so um, the albumin's low, the AFP is markedly elevated at 593, Overall, good liver function, but the upper endoscopy is done and shows two large varices requiring banding. In addition, the patient has moderate portal hypertensive gastropathy. So this patient really is high risk of bleeding um, on the upper endoscopy. So, you know, this patient did go to tumor board, was found to have definite HCC by imaging. So, um, you know, LIRADS 5 um, did not need histologic confirmation, but the question becomes, what is the appropriate treatment for this patient? This patient should not be eligible for atizolizumab and bevacizumab, um, given the higher risk of bleeding with bevacizumab and the high risk state that we see, see on the upper endoscopy. 
Uh, this patient has metastatic disease, so likely should not receive local regional therapy. And so we're really left with other approved first-line agents include serafinib and lenvatinib. Those are the other two primary um, uh, modalities that we have available in the first-line setting. Um, and there are some data for nivolumab in select patients um, in the frontline setting. So I think the, the treatment choice here reflects what the guidelines are. Uh, next slide. So, um, you know, the, during the talk today, most of the presentation is going to be focused on the advanced stage setting, this Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Stage C. These are patients who typically have metastatic disease or vascular invasion. And this is really where, um, you know, first line systemic therapy uh, continues to be um, to, to play the main role. I think there has been increasing recognition that if people start on local regional therapy and are, you know, have quote unquote taste failure or are, are no longer suitable for local regional therapy, these patients should also move to systemic therapy. And as, um, you know, we'll get into a little bit, there's also now debate in the field of patients with large intrahepatic tumor burden, these quote unquote bad intermediate stage disease patients, these patients may also instead benefit from systemic therapy instead of local regional therapy. But, you know, the exact cutoff in terms of systemic versus local regional for those patients is truly being debated and currently unknown. But I think, you know, what I would like to really impress with this slide is even though most of our presentation is going to be focused on the systemic therapy space, it is important that if patients are found at an early stage, that we have surgical curative therapies available. We can, we can do surgical resection, liver transplantation, local ablative therapies, and these therapies are associated with five-year survival well over 60 to 70%. This continues to be the only curative therapies we have and the only therapies that really give us a chance at five and 10-year survival. So even though we're, we have such incredible advances on the, the advanced stage setting, this truly is important to keep in mind. And so if you find people with earlier stages of disease, it's important to refer them um, for evaluation of these um, curative therapies. Next slide. You know, and, and given the fact that these therapies are all being delivered by different providers, it's important that we get all of these providers sitting around a table, um, you know, whether this is in a multidisciplinary conference or a multidisciplinary clinic, it's important that everyone talks to each other. And so, you know, this involves uh, medical oncology, this involves transplant hepatology, um, hepatobiliary surgery or surgical oncology. This involves interventional radiology, radiation oncology. I mean, really, we need everyone to sit around and, and to take a look and to figure out what is the optimal therapy for each individual patient. This is only going to become more and more important as we have stage migration, um, you know, both in terms of downstaging as well as progression where people will go from one therapy to another. And we'll also touch on the, the, the future of HEC management, which is really combination therapies. And so multidisciplinary care has already been associated to have multiple benefits, including better therapies, better time to therapy and improved survival across several studies. And so should be regarded as the standard of care for the management of HCC. It's such an exciting time in HCC right now to be treating patients because we have so much more to offer them. Back in 2007, 2008, all we had was serafinib. And, you know, it was a little bit dismal to not be able to offer patients more treatment. And now in the last three or four years, there have been so many new therapies that have shown a lot of promise. 
And so it's really exciting to be able to talk to you today about what you can offer your patients when they walk into clinic. Okay, so now for the main takeaway for this entire presentation in terms of what do we give first line for patients with advanced HCC? The combination of the PDL1 inhibitor, atezolizumab, plus the VEGF monoclonal antibody, bevacizumab. It was a trial comparing these two versus serafinib in a two to one randomization, a first line treatment of patients who had unresectable or metastatic HCC. And this was first, this regimen was first evaluated in a phase one study where the response rate was 36%. That looked so promising that they went directly to a phase three study. And the primary endpoint for this was a co-primary endpoint, overall survival and progression-free survival. And indeed, this was a positive study and it was a very positive study. Atezobev had a median overall survival of 19.2 months compared to 13.4 months and had a progression-free survival of 6.9 months versus 4.3 months. And so overall, this met its primary endpoint and it became the uh, frontline standard for HCC. And when you look at the response rate, this is the, the up, these are the updated data from GI ASCO just a couple of months ago, showing a confirmed overall response rate of 3% in the atezobev arm and 11% in the serafinib arm. And if you look at the median duration of response, you see it was 18.1 months in the combination arm compared to 14.9 months in the serafinib arm. And I certainly have patients who got atezobev and two, three years out, they still are in a partial response or some in a complete response, and they're doing really well. So we're really hitting some home runs with this combination. Atezobev is a well-tolerated regimen. One of the things Amit emphasized over and over was the importance of checking for varices in patients with HCC. And this was a requirement to go on the study that all patients had to have had an endoscopy within six months of going on the study. And why is that? The main reason is, as Amit shared, those varices are thin little blood vessels, and there is a high risk of bleeding with bevacizumab if someone, for example, has grade two, grade three varices that are untreated. And so all patients should undergo an endoscopy. And, you know, especially patients who have any evidence of portal hypertension on their CT scan or by their lab. So, for example, if they have low platelets, a little bit of splenomegaly, especially if you're see seeing any varices on the scan, if they have a cirrhotic looking liver and you're worried that way. Um, all patients should have a baseline endoscopy to make sure they're safe to go on this regimen. The truth is, among patients with child PUA cirrhosis, which, as Amit mentioned, it's so important to calculate the child PU score for any patient walking into your clinic before you give HCC therapy, the rate of varices is certainly lower than patients who have child PU B or child PU C cirrhosis, but we certainly still do see varices in patients with child PUA cirrhosis. So it is important for everyone to get this. The good news in this trial is the rate of GI bleeding was not significantly higher in the atezobev arm compared to the serafinib arm because we screened out those patients with varices, with untreated varices, and the GI bleeding rate was 7% versus 4.5%. Um, who do you not want to give atezobev to? So if you see someone in your clinic who has a history of an organ transplant, so for example, they had a liver transplant for HCC or another indication, or they had a kidney transplant or a heart transplant, there's a high risk of rejection with the checkpoint inhibitors, so we do not give a tezolizumab in that setting. People with a history of active autoimmune disease, so Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, um, diseases like uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, for example, and people who are on thyroid replacement, 
that kind of autoimmune disease is okay, but anyone obviously who's had active autoimmune disease, you want to be careful. Um, Immune-mediated pneumonitis, hepatitis, or colitis, or endocrinopathies in the past, there could be a recrudescence of any of those, so um, to avoid a in that setting. Bevacizumab, many of you are familiar with giving bevacizumab um, for other cancers, but you know anyone who has a history of GI perforation, has had recent surgery because there's a concern for wound healing, any kind of recent major bleeding, especially variceal bleeding. And then the one I see in my clinic not infrequently is uncontrolled hypertension. Sometimes people have blood pressures at baseline that are greater than 150 over 90. And in that setting, I will start antihypertensives to bring their blood pressure below 150 over 90 before starting it has, uh, before starting bevacizumab. And I check their blood pressure. Um, obviously, we do it for all patients, but I really particularly take a note of their blood pressure when I see them and I'm redosing them. And then I also, as with bevacizumab, we check their UA. We do it, you know, every other dose to make sure they don't have significant proteinuria. Let's return to the case of the patient who had advanced HCC. She was 56, had NASH, had a 16 centimeter mass, had the main portal vein invasion, had child QA. This patient is a great candidate for a Tezobev. Now, what if this patient had child QB liver function? As Amit said, whenever someone walks into your clinic, you want to calculate your child QB score and also see what their stage is. So if this patient had child QB liver function with um, a bilirubin of 2.3 at baseline, some mildly low platelets, and specifically had B7 disease, same patient, what would you recommend for this patient? So it's a good question what to do in this situation. We don't have great prospective randomized data in the setting of child QB, but the two answers I would say we have some data on in the front line are nivolumab and serafinib. For nivolumab, the Checkmate 040 study had a specific arm for patients who had child QB7 or B8 disease. And in that arm, there were patients that had nivolumab in the front line or also in subsequent lines. And that data showed that there were not specifically um, higher rates of hepatotoxicity with nivolumab in child QB7 or B8 patients. And that's important. And then based on the data of the nivolumab versus serafinib also, with nivolumab in the front line having some efficacy, nivolumab would be a reasonable choice given the safety that's been shown. And then serafinib, you know, there was a, this, a study called the Gideon study, which was uh, study, a prospective study, real-world study looking at serafinib in patients with child pew A, B, and C disease. Um, and, you know, the median survival in child pew A was a little over 13 months. The median survival in child pew B was five months. And also there was a large meta-analysis of 30 studies, which similarly showed the median survival in patients with child pew B with serafinib is around five months. So, you know, with a thoughtful conversation with patients and having shared decision-making, I think it would be reasonable to offer nivolumab or serafinib to patients and seeing what they would prefer. So now this patient had a tezobev and good tolerability and had progression after seven months. They're still child QA, but their AFP is 4,500. What would you choose? All the therapies that are approved in the second line have come after serafinib. Um, and so, Lipka, I think this is a, a good point for us to discuss and, and really talk through this is, um, how do you personally choose, um, once you ha have somebody on serafinib, how do you choose between these different agents, um, particularly and specifically TKI therapy versus IO? Yeah, generally speaking, part of it's about how often when I get to plan B, am I going to be able to get to plan C? 
Um, I personally like to really think about giving IO in the second line because I don't know if the patient is going to be able to get to plan C. And so if the patient is a candidate for um, immunotherapy, I strongly consider giving Nevo, Pembro, or Nevo Ipi. I generally like patients to have a slightly better performance status um, and be able to overall tolerate some of the adverse events that can come with Nevo Ipi. I think about combination therapy, but the response rate again with Nevo Ipi was a little over 30% compared to between 14 and 18% for Nevo or Pembro alone. Um, if someone tolerated serafinib well and they got a lot of efficacy out of serafinib, it's also very reasonable to think about the targeted therapies. And I think we went over the eligibility criteria for Rego, Cabo, and RAM. Yeah, but I, I agree. We use a very similar sort of um, you know thought process in our clinical practice that if you know somebody's on serafinib or lymvatinib and they they basically get you know a, a long time before having progression, tolerate the TKI very well, you know we're more likely to consider TKI in the second line. Um, but I think we're very cognizant that, you know, the immune checkpoint inhibitors do give us the best chance at response. And those people who have these like very deep durable responses can actually have very long survival. So it is nice to try to get that in if at all possible. Now, um, Lipica, you know, you went through that outside of somebody having child pub disease where you'd consider serafinib or Nevo in the frontline setting or high risk of bleeding where you consider TKI upfront. Most of our patients with child pub A disease um, and advanced HEC these days are going to be started on a tizobev. Um, so, you know, what do you consider after a tizobev in terms of second line therapy, and how do you make those decisions? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, as oncologists, like when we're in a data free zone, how do we make decisions? You know, there are some um, retrospective data, uh, retrospective studies looking at how people do on various treatments after a tizobev, but you know, a lot of it comes down to how did they do on the bevacizumab component and how did they do on the atezolizumab component? And so if they tolerated the VEGF side effects, okay, they didn't have significant hypertension or, you know, um, any kind of bleeding on atezolizumab, I think it's reasonable to choose one of the VEGF-directed therapies. So it could be serafinib or linbatinib. So, you know, one of the first-line therapies because they seem to have significant efficacy as first-line agents or it's also reasonable to consider um, Rego or Cabo. I'm a little bit less likely to choose Ramacirumab alone after um, Bevacizumab. And then um, if someone did not have significant toxicities from the Atezo in terms of immunotherapy tox, I think Nevo-Ipi is also reasonable to consider after Atezo-Bev. So again, I look at the safety profile as one of the main things. And then as always, you know, shared making with patients and discussing the various options. Yeah, no, I think that that's once again very similar to what we do. I mean, you know, I think the the mantra of do no harm, you know, applies here. And so I think, you know, your your um, consideration of, of AEs is very similar to what we do. Um, and like you, you know, we typically don't consider Nevo, Pembro, or RAM um, second line after Atizobev because you've already had that PD-1, PD-L1 access acted upon and you've already had some VEGF, you know, um, uh, inhibitor there, you know, that VEGF access acted upon. So we try to broaden the the targets that we would hit. Um, I'd say most commonly, um, you know, after Atizobev, I think we probably use serafinib and levatinib most commonly. Um, although, once again, there are some patients that we would consider some of these other agents. Um, the other one that we typically don't use second line after Atizobev is we typically don't use Rego. As you mentioned in the resource trial, patients were required to have serafinib tolerance. 
Um, and so we typically reserve LIGO for those who have had a test of serafinib for tolerance at least. So the case um, of, of our patient with immune-mediated hepatitis, 60-year-old uh, male, presumed alcohol-related cirrhosis, advanced HCC, starts um, treatment on a TZOBEV for this, this metastatic disease. Baseline AST and ALT are um, reasonable um, in their 50s, otherwise compensated cirrhosis. And then during routine monitoring, noted to have a bump in the AST and ALT up to around 250 to 300, otherwise feels well. Um, let's talk about this um, and then we'll come back to it. Um, so, um, you know, once again, I think many of you are used to immune checkpoint inhibitors, not only in HEC, but in other diseases. And I think all of us are cognizant that immune checkpoint inhibitors, um, as Lipica pointed out, and even in the HEC trials, generally safe, although we know that any type of immune-related AE can happen. Um, and you see several of the organ systems or several of the immune checkpoint inhibitor um, immune-related events that can occur. So even though they're uncommon, need to have a high level of suspicion. Next slide. Now we have general guidelines for the management of these immune-related um, AEs. Um, you know, if the if the um, a, the immune-mediated effect is is mild, um, grade one, asymptomatic to mild symptoms, mild in nature, you can simply observe. You can continue the immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, um, and then see how the patient does. Um, but once it starts to become more moderate in terms of severity, this is really where we need to with we need to stop um, or hold the immune checkpoint inhibitor. Um, there really is no role for dose reduction. It's really you know holding the immune checkpoint inhibitor at this point, um, and you know you can consider steroids um, at that point, and then you can redose um, you know or restart it once the toxicity improves to less than grade one. Um, if that patient has grade three AE, we definitely need to stop the immune checkpoint inhibitor um, and, you know, basically do high dose steroids um, at that time. Um, and really, you want to make sure that you truly treat with high dose steroids and long enough um, to make sure that this patient has a good response prior to, uh, um, you know, calling it a day. Um, some of these patients may even require hospitalization, depending on, once again, how that patient is doing. So, you know, I, I think one of the things that I would point out as we go back into this is that, you know, um, um, immune-mediated hepatitis in the setting of HEC is one of the unique things in the sense of the, the AST and ALT are really based on the baseline um, AST and ALT. As we talked about, many of these patients have chronic liver disease, and so don't start with normal AST and ALT. Um, and so the, the grade of, of immune-mediated hepatitis, which is presumably what this patient has, um, is really based on that baseline elevation um, and then, you know, the degree of magnitude greater than the baseline. So, um, you know, what would you do if this patient had hepatitis B? So, you know, we said presumed alcohol-related liver disease, um, but, you know, of course, it's always important to check the patient for viral hepatitis. Um, you know, and, and let's say this patient was found to be hepatitis B surface antigen positive at the time of this bump in the LFTs. Um, you know, Lipica, what would you do in this type of patient? Yeah, so... You know, ideally, we're checking everyone's hepatitis serology before we start the immune checkpoint inhibitor because anyone who I put on an immune checkpoint inhibitor, if they have hepat chronic hepatitis B, I start them on antiviral therapy, so entecavir, tenofovir, something that's going to be effective in controlling their hepatitis B while we um, allow their immune system to address their HCC. But, you know, it does happen sometimes that for whatever reason, we start the treatment and the person did not have uh, testing done. So I would um, certainly start them on antiviral treatment at that time. 
Yeah, no, that's exactly so very important points. I mean, obviously the best thing is to prevent this from happening, you know, prevent the surprise from happening. So, you know, routinely check hepatitis B um, serologies prior to starting any therapy. This patient should have had it right in the beginning. Um, but, you know, if this happens where the patient is found to be hepatitis B in the middle of the course, um, you know, clearly um, important to start this patient on antiviral therapy at this point. Um, and, you know, then you're really left with, is this hepatitis B related flare or is this an immune uh, related AE? Um, and this is one of the cases where, you know, if you have a, um, a black and white case where, you know, it's an immune related AE, you know, it may not be, you know, you may not need to do the biopsy and many cases you don't need to do the biopsy. But, you know, when you have this uncertainty, whether it's like, you know, viral hepatitis versus um, uh, immune related AE or herbals versus immune related AEs, there are certain cases where a biopsy may be helpful to distinguish these things, but definitely needs antiviral therapy um, at this point. Thank you very much, Dr. Single and Dr. Goyle, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to claim CME credit and view the full program, Current and Future Immunotherapy Approaches for HCC, Evidence, Guidance, and Resources, and to download additional resources associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.